I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Ninja. Owen, hey, uh, we've, okay. deci- we've decided arbitrarily that you're next. I'm taking the next one. Weren't those ad? Mo- or weren't those book moms great? Oh, oh those book moms. Those you. book moms are actually like that. That made the, the podcast for me. If you haven't, this will be a new podcast episode. So if you haven't gone back and listened to the book moms, go do it again. Even if you have, yeah. Oh, that was that was good. Actually, I would. I said during that that I would listen to them as a podcast. No joke. I want them to have worked through their entire reading list and be talking about it all the time. All right. Thank you for doing that, Jacob. My next book is The Humor Code by Peter McGraw and Joel Warner. So this Let's book go. is a, a scientist and a journalist who get together to try to figure out the science behind what makes things funny. So this is, again, a continuation of my quest to figure out the answer to that question. Um, and it was... It was pretty good, actually. They tried to be actually kind of technical. They did a lot of traveling around and checking out different cultures and uh, inspecting people like in really hard situations as well, like like people in like high crisis situations and seeing how they're using humor to help them cope and uh, coming up with theories for what makes a joke flop versus what makes a joke work. Um, examining like sort of tropes and, and about or stereotypes about what makes things funny. So things like timing, um, things like the idea that like really good comedians are tortured like the the idea that they are you know a really good comedian is like depressed and stuff behind the scenes i don't know if you've heard that as a stereotype but it, it's quite common um and so it's really really interesting um they don't necessarily arrive at like a really clear cut yeah we've we worked it down to a little formula for you um but they do have some pretty decent models like they have one uh the benign violation theory um, which is just this idea that you need to have a violation um, that is just benign enough. And that is what makes something work as a joke. And so what they mean by that is that the joke has to push the envelope somewhere. It has to like be a little bit like, oh, that's not what's supposed to happen here. Even if it's just something ridiculous, right? You does not have to be a rude joke. It just has to be something that's not what you expect or not what is desirable or not proper somehow. Um, but it, it can't be too far because then it's offensive. It has to be benign enough. So it's like, it's like a, it's like an ameliorated violation. It has to be benign violation. And if you can hit that perfect balance, that's when you're getting something that's funny. And that's why like, and if it's not, if it's too benign, it's not funny. It's not funny Cause if I was like, ha, Jesse has short hair. Ha ha. Everyone would be like, well, he's got long hair. And yeah, <laughs> that wasn't really funny. So, that's a okay. that's an odd observation, yeah. Jacob. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, that was quite a mid. And I guess it goes without saying that like different people would have a slightly different sweet Goldilocks zone for where where it's, but that there maybe is you can kind of pinpoint in a culture where it's like generally this is what people are going to find funny. And if you're in, a, it's always fun when you meet a new group of friends and you're sort of testing the waters of like, oh, what will you guys find funny? Um, I always found that interesting. So do I. I really love that. And then like you, it's such a joy when you like push the violation just a little further. And again, I'm using the word violation only because it's part of the benign violation theory, right? Can we find a, another word for this? I'm, I'm using the theory. <laughs> I like to violate groups. Just like, <laughs> wait, no, what? I didn't say that. That's <laughs> benign. Viol- it was benign, guys. Like, 
<laughs> okay. Owen does this every I week. Did not, I did not name the theory. I did not name the theory. This is not my fault. Okay. It, but you, you just sort of push the envelope a little Humor bit. Humor is conversation violation. Uh, like, yeah, there you go. But it has to be benign. Um, and then everyone laughs, though, when you've pushed the envelope a little further than you had previously. And you're like, oh, sweet. So that's all. This like opens up a whole new territory that we can work with, you know? <laughs> that's so funny. Sometimes it's not yeah, that though. Sometimes something's funny that's not that. Does it address types of humor that are like not? Give an example. Um, so, something I was tickling. No, that's something I was that's dying tickling. laughing with my friends about. Well, I guess this kind of was a benign violation. Okay, well, slapstick is because it's not expected. It's a violation of your like bodily integrity. Okay, if you if you push it to that, then it's fine too. Yeah, so tickling is a good example. Of Okay, I wasn't thinking of tickling. I was thinking of... But I'm not going to give the example because it does... Yeah, okay. I'll accept this premise. Uh, is this book a recommend? Um. So in terms of recommend, um, yes and no. Again, I'm on a little mission to understand humor better. And so... It's a recommendation to me. Yep, yeah, you, for sure. Um, I think some people might find that the journalist who did a lot of the, the authoring of it um, maybe got a little political sometimes and stuff like that. So, you know, I could see some people being kind of a little delicate and being rubbed the wrong way about it. But honestly, by and large, it was a good... It was a good book. I enjoyed it. It's funny and it's informative. And I <laughs> loved their exploration of, like, different cultures and how... And, like, really interesting, difficult stuff. So, like, they talked about the Muhammad cartoons. Ooh. Yeah, and like, and how to think about like that really edgy, like kind of humor that has like a lot of people offended and gets people worked up, and what that looks like, and what, like respond the responsibility of the individual when it comes to humor and stuff like that. So it was honestly a pretty solid. Re- everyone here, solid <clears throat> recommend you guys. There's a a book that I'm really interested in reading or writing called The Theology of Fun, and. I really want to understand the role of humor in the Christian life because it's a lot of those things, right? Like the role of a comedian, like the jester is the only one who can laugh at the king. You know what I mean? Like there's sort of these art tropes and archetypes of why we all find comedians. Like if you really love comedy, you know that comedy is, it's a way of speaking truth. That's very interesting. And so I, I don't know. It's just, it's super cool. Like what, what I'd love is if once you get to the end of the, your little comedy run here, Tell us about like what's shaped you, like what has has changed in you because of this. Okay, yeah, I'm excited to read that. Uh, my next book was In Search of the Source, which my dear mother already <laughs> talked about, um, and it was great. I loved it. I can do another one. Um, this I'm going to take a bit of time on this one because this one I have a lot of thoughts on. It was Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Taules. I don't know if that's how you say his name. Has anyone read this? Nope. nope. It is a work of fiction. It feels old when you read it. It just kind of has that smell about it of like, in a good way, like of like good old British literature, but it is actually pretty recently written, like late 2000s or something. Amor Taules. I'm not sure that's how you say it. Gentleman, a gentleman in Moscow. The, the premise is basically that there was a Russian aristocrat who wrote poetry and he wrote a poem that kind of got adopted by the revolution as sort of a call to arms and was so beloved by the revolution that when they killed uh, all of the aristocrats, they spared his life and 
instead put him on house arrest for life um, in a large hotel in Moscow. So it's an interesting concept because basically he's a relatively young guy and he has the rest of his life ahead of him stuck in this hotel. And as the sort of classy gentleman that he is, he's sort of been raised to like, you make the best of everything. And so he just sort of sets about to like make the best of his life and see how much luxury in commonplace things he can kind of make for himself, even though like all of his family was killed and he's stuck here for the rest of his life, even though he's a very free spirited guy. And it was like, man, I, okay. In search of in the book, in search of the source, the last one I read, um, the people group that they were working with had this saying where they would say, we we are dying of the deliciousness of this talk. That was how I felt about this book. Like the turns of phrase were just so wonderful. Like I just could read you a few of them here. Indeed was a sentence that held the period in healthy disregard. Like what a great way to say that he talked too much in contrast. Here's, here's one with his barber. He says trim. He asked wasting no times with subjects, verbs of the other super superfluity superf superf oh, and superfluities of language. Um, can you read that one more time? No, I can't. No, I'm actually, actually, it's, oh, it's such a trim. Cool. He asked wasting no time with subjects, verbs of the other superfluities of language. He, he found the unflappable Accardi looking unusually flapped. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you can understand the position this puts me in. In reality, the Count could not understand the position this put him in. Like, it's just great. Like, honestly, like, this book is kind of worth reading just for the prose. Um, here's, here's my two kind of reservations. Um, number one, there is a it's it's such a classy book based on how classy the character is and then there's just sort of randomly this one kind of racy scene in the middle of it it's not terribly egregious but it's just sort of like why did you ruin the tone of this book with that um and it just feels kind of out of place um the other thing it's not that big of a reservation i just feel like i need to warn you before you can fully enjoy it i could not figure out what genre this book was the whole time because on one hand had these certain like really dark undertones. Like you would introduce this new character and be like, is this going to be like the deep dark villain? That's going to like make this book really intense. And it would seem like the book was building something really intense. And then it would also be like just these cute little episodes with like wholesome people. And I'm like, maybe this is like an Anne of green Gables style thing where it's like episodes that don't really have any super dark themes. It's just sort of his, like, you know, him becoming a more developed man, you know, like I could not figure it out and I, I'm not going to tell you which one it was. I just am going to tell you, like, I think I would have enjoyed it more if I wasn't living with this constant tension of not knowing what kind of book it was. Just know that it does actually lead to a good ending. And it is actually like, it, it does actually have an arc. Just the arc is super unconventional. Like for instance, the chapters form this chiasm and there's different episodes and different parts of the story that mirror each other. Like clearly the author put a lot of thought into it. In fact, I really feel like I need to reread it just to, fully like i feel like i probably missed a lot i i, I want to talk so much more about this one but i i feel like i probably in case you guys do read it i shouldn't give spoilers i think i'm gonna read it yeah it's it's not like the greatest book i've ever read i did i did enjoy it a lot though and i think just even for how nicely it's written it's probably worth the read just for that all the all the russianness of it is really fun as well it's not actually written by a russian but all the like um russian references to russian authors if you're into that at all you'll love it it is on Audible, and the Audible reader is great. Cool. 
The Great Evangelical Recession by John S. Dickerson. Eh, it's mid. It was basically about, like, he's like, you probably think that evangelicals make up 40% of America. Well, it they don't. They're actually less. Wow, America's not as great of a nation as it used to be, and we have to be prepared for that. And I was like, okay, yep, kind of knew that. And it was written in 2012, and it was like, I think we kind of got that mid, so moving on. Nice. Wonderfully Made, A Protestant Theology of the Body by John Kleining. Um, yep, this is a mid-book as well. I learned some good stuff in it, but honestly, it was organized very poorly, and that was a big downer. Also, you have some weird stuff on the sacramental body as a Lutheran, which was just not great. So, uh, I'll do my next one, Mission Drift, The Unspoken Crisis, Facing Leaders, Charities, and Churches. Huh. Uh, Very good. Owen used the term Mission Drift earlier, and I was like, I wonder if there's a good book about Mission Drift. Uh, Yep, this is the one. Wow. Uh, Peter Greer and Chris Horst, Christian guys. They do kind of two things. One, walk through, okay, what is mission drift and why does it happen? And then two, how do you not have it happen? And then they use stories of big institutions like Yale, Harvard, nonprofits, other things that started off deeply Christian and then became totally secular through mission drift and then would occasionally compare it with other organizations that started at the same time, but stayed mission true that's really cool so it's a good book short especially if you're running a business or a nonprofit. profit yeah. i think about mission drift it's cool because they also have some strategies on how to prevent mission drift in your organization um which i thought was really good so a win you're up hello this is Thomas. Thomas. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Thomas is back. All right. My next book is called Overture uh, by Sidney Goudreau. Uh, this is a book that I had the honor of reading as a beta reader, uh, written by a friend of mine. So this is still in draft form. Uh, it was really good. Uh, I don't want to misrepresent it. I think that she would say that it belongs to kind of like your young adult fantasy as a genre. Um, very clearly, it's going to have sequels. Uh, and I look forward to reading those sequels. I can't say much about it, right? Because it's like, this is not on the final draft yet or anything like that. But it was a huge privilege. Thank you for letting me read it, Sydney. Cool. Yeah. It's actually kind of a pleasure being a beta reader now and then. If you, if you find the time and someone's like, hey, I've written a book. Do you want to read it? Uh, that's, that's, that's a good time. I remember fondly my yeah. time beta reading yeah. Good books. Oh, thanks, man. Awesome. Uh, my next book was Church in Hard Places by Mez McConnell and Mike Ooh. McKinley. Have any of you guys read this? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's about um, how ultimately um, alleviation of uh, poverty and pain in difficult areas is mostly going to come from the church proper and not parachurch organizations. And it's a great read. It was a reread for me. It was great both times. Big, rec- big recommend. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. Good. It was, uh, it was one of those books that it's a classic. I mean, super iconic book. I don't know why it's so popular. 
it just says true things quite true. It's good. It was good. Like it was good. Evangelism is not dream God. It's about like Calvinism and stuff. He's well written. It's tight. I think it was one of those books that just checked the box of something people wanted to say well. And they were like, yeah, that's the book that says what I wanted to say. So I don't know. No critiques. It was just kind of like, okay, cool. Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. This is a really good little short book. It's a hundred super, super tiny little short book. Uh, it's 98 pages. Uh, so small. But it's also like in reality more like 50 pages because these pages are small and large print. Um, this is a big recommendation if you want to learn how to pray the Bible and you should want to learn how to pray the Bible. Um, this is also just a good resource to give to people who aren't readers. Uh, very approachable, accessible. He kind of does a defense of why you should pray the Bible, how to pray the Bible, and then some just kind of like praying the Bible for life. And yeah, really good. Recommend it. All right. My next book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Again. Again. Yeah, I did read it twice in one year, bro. Wow. So going back to what I was saying at the beginning of this podcast, where I was saying that listening to it, I reflect on the fact that I am not very good at summarizing books. <sighs> listening to the way we discussed, or at least the way I discussed this book before, I was like, ah, hey, you know what? I didn't do a very good job representing that book well, especially having read it the second time through. Um, I think I may, I could have left you with the wrong impression of what it's all about. And what it's all about is giving you, it's right in there in the title, it's giving you a sense of where the modern sort of understanding of the self comes from. Right. And one of the ways in which I think we may have, or I may have not perfectly represented this book um, to others in, in the way I discussed it previously was that I, he raises the, the, the subject of um, sort of like a transgender way of thinking um, as an example of the, the perception of the modern self. The book is not about that. That is almost kind of like a, uh, he would say like a symptom, but even just, it's just a product maybe. It's also, it was also the impetus for the book in a sense. Like, like Somewhat. conceptually, he's yeah. just like, so this is something that's crazy. Yeah. I wonder how we got here. Yeah. But when I, part of what my thinking on, like how I discuss books on this podcast is like, if I talk about a book for four minutes, am I spending three minutes of it talking about like a tangential part of what the book is about instead of like really making sure that the listener gets a good understanding of what the book is about and then maybe giving a minute to some some particular thing that stood out to me. I don't think I'm really good at hitting that balance yet. So sorry for that, listeners, and I'm going to keep working on that. So this time, I'm just going to let you know, Rise of Time for the Modern Self, second time through, got more out of it, which is fantastic. I don't think he takes a single cheap shot in this book, which is just, that is a, that's a pretty big statement. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, like, that's not for nothing, man. It's a it's a pretty sizable book. And also, I was talking to uh, Dr. Haken, Dr. Michael Haken, about it. And he knows Carl Truman. And so, he's like, that guy's a, like a high-integrity guy. He's not out there trying to be a culture warrior. He honestly is just kind of a church history nerd and like a history of the culture guy. And he, yeah, I don't know. 
I just, I really recommend this book. I think this is a good example of high integrity writing. He really doesn't take cheap shots. And he, you can see him intentionally trying to avoid doing so and intentionally trying to make sure that Nietzsche would probably approve of how Truman portrays Nietzsche. You know what I mean? And that is not for nothing. That's a pretty big deal coming from a Christian writer. Uh, issues like specific issues like transgenderism or anything else like that is only... Yeah, it's only paragraphs within a greater thesis of how the modern self came to be um, and, and walking you through how we arrived at this understanding of the individual. So, yeah, really, again, just a strong recommend once again. I think it's interesting because you're like, he's a strong integrity, no cheap shots. And it's like, that would be good for its own sake. But because he doesn't take cheap shots and seeks to really understand he almost uniquely unlocks what these authors were trying to get at. So if you were just like, huh, God is dead. Wasn't Nietzsche such an awful person? Nietzsche's dead. (laughs) Yeah. Then you, well, you miss what Nietzsche contributed to the intellectual landscape moving forward. So if you're snarky about it, you miss how important a puzzle piece he is to the series of thoughts. And it's because he reads it, him winsomely tries to understand he would have, critiques obviously it allows him to be a good like to be a good historian oh and he's such a good writer oh like earlier we were talking about like how you can have academic writing that achieves excellence this is a good example of that it's not hyper academic or anything like that but like it is it is just beautiful yeah my next book was Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Nietzsche. <laughs> no, I, I flipped That's around. It was, it was oh, like on, it was like one book later, so I just flipped it around. You could I'm have sorry. not qualified that. I would have just liked the lie. I know. I'm sorry. Um, I hated it. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like wanted to. I wanted to not hate it because it's such a it's such a like I don't know cold take to be annoyed at Nietzsche. Probably because I saw it on your shelf and I took it off. I'm sorry that I'm wrecking all the serendipity moments by like (laughs) demystifying them. I'm like, why is the Antichrist also by Frederick Nietzsche sitting on my bed where I most (laughs) definitely did not place it? (laughs) Like this character, I'm most scared of is coming for us. Um, Yeah, he's haunting your room. That would be an unfortunate ghost. Oh my goodness. (laughs) No, it wouldn't be. He seems really annoying. I, I'm sorry. I, 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 I know it just went over my head and it was like too deep for me. Like I get it, but I, I was just really wanted to like, like get into a fight with him the whole time. I was like, this is such a like gross ideology. I know it's, I know it's being told through like this, um, interesting fictional format. Um, but so it's like, you can't, it's not like literally his words, but I was like, I can see why some people took this and manipulated it very easily. Some oh, some yeah. unfortunate characters such as Mr. Mr. Adolf. Like, you know, like like it's that's not fo- that's not Nietzsche's fault, but it's like I can see why this was attractive to them because anyway. Anyway, I right I, this is a spoiler, but right after it I read Orthodoxy by GK Chesterton. I'm really making it happy right now. And he has this hilarious like there's so many quotes in that book. It's so quotable. But it's the mo- one of those quotable books I've ever read. I'll just I'll just go and do that one after this and then and then I'll skip next round but no, but one of my favorite quotes was Nietzsche could sneer but he could not laugh. And I like immediately just sat down and wrote an entire song. Like I paused the book and wrote a whole song 
based on that line. And I don't know if it's good because I haven't read enough Nietzsche. So it's like, it's kind of taking cheap. Sh- I was not following the Carl Truman thing. I took cheap shots at Nietzsche in that song. Um, there's like a line about him not being able to bench press very much and stuff. It's like, <laughs> anyway, it was, it was like, I went after him and unfortunately I liked the song. So if I get the stamp approval from you guys, I might actually make it. But anyway, orthodoxy, I did like, I procrastinated reading this because the book had a title like the word orthodoxy and it was written by a man with a name like GK Chesterton. So I was not prepared for what a pure joy this book is. It's also short. So you should read it. (laughs) I think it's about a hundred pages, maybe 150 at most at most. It's really short and it's really fun to be fair. Like some of his thoughts are pretty heady. Like I'm not saying it's like, not saying it's light reading necessarily, but, but he makes it light by how fun he is. So like, just some of my favorite quotes that I need to read. This is important. I tried to be 10 minutes ahead of the truth, but found out I was 1800 years behind it. I tried to discover a heresy of my own. And when I had put the last touches on it, I discovered that it was orthodoxy. St. John saw many strange monsters in his visions, yet no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Mr. Blatchford is not only an early Christian, he is the only early Christian who really ought to have been eaten by lions. (laughs) When H.G. Wells says all chairs are quite different, he utters a contradiction in terms. If all chairs were quite different, then he would not call them all chairs. It's pretty deep. I have no idea what the context of that was. That's the thing. The one problem with this book is that it's very like based on authors he was critiquing at the time. And like a lot of those people have not survived the way he has. And so you're kind of reading this and like, I don't know what article you're talking about, but I'm sure they're an idiot because you sound really smart right now. Um, The evolutionist asks, where do you draw the line? The revolutionist answers, I draw it right here, exactly between your head and your body. Uh, And then this is just kind of an actually deep one. Um, Nature is not our mother. She is our sister. We can be proud of her beauty since we have the same father. She has no authority over us and we must admire, but not imitate. He's basically talking about some of the fallacies people have where, where they're like, Oh, well nature does this. So we would follow it. And he's basically saying like, yeah, she's to be admired, not to be imitated. So I thought that was actually quite poetic and actually some of those things are poetic i'm like your actual point makes no sense but but you write it so beautifully that i want to believe you this one was actually like that's actually a very uh well-written line anyway couldn't put it down go read it go read orthodoxy it was great nice so you did not love the zarathustra i i didn't sorry that we moved on for that no it's okay so i also read it i also um <clears throat> did not like I, I i just genuinely came away with the impression that i would not like this man the guy yeah. writing it yeah. and he, he has he has some wild sexist crap in there oh that is like the most next level woman hating stuff you've ever read but like because he's such an intentional thinker it actually makes it so much worse because like it's not like he's just like off the cuff bullcrap like saying something it's rude like, about women it's like you're gross and you thought this through he's like yeah he's very he's like let me let me present this poetically and very carefully and in, in a structured way women you are the playthings of us men for we are the warriors and it's like dude i hate you like you're the worst like, <laughs> even like the most noble parts of the book were like kind of like the whole just the whole ubermensch thing just gave i hated it so much it's like what a sad ideology Anyway, I'm going to move on from that one. Yep. Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Nice. Yep. What did you think? It was very good. 
I thought it was a little long. Maybe a bit more rotund than it needed to be. <laughs> rotund? I just... It was great. How dare you say that about my wife or daughter? <laughs> it was like Owen's just hauling that mic over. It, it was good. Like, it was great. Like, How dare you? It, it just... Okay. Would you not agree? I had no... Disor- Thomas does not approve. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas. I just feel like... I did... There was no discernible plot for the first, like like 150 200 300 pages like let's go let's go you don't really know what's going on for a while until you kind of get like all right so it's gonna be that they're gonna get remarried okay okay i can see the conflict coming on the horizon all right now we're checking out and it's only midway through the book that the dudes are really introduced as like any romantic things going on and that's when you really get the real tension and stuff like it takes a long time to get to the point like forever it's great it's good Okay, do you really think that the dudes had to show up for, like, the tension to appear? Yes. No! <laughs> like, I mean, there was other tensions. <laughs> Anyways, you, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can make your case. It's not really one of my quick recommends, to be honest. I thought really? It was great. Yeah, it was Dude. good. I liked it. But it was just long. Okay. Was like, okay. You know what? Fine. All right, that there's personal beef here. I'm gonna move on. Uh, seeing beauty, <laughs> seeing beauty, and saying beautifully. Uh, by John Piper. The power of poetic effort in the works of George Herbert, George Whitfield, and C.S. Lewis. That sounds so, good. Yeah, it's really good. It's uh, a short biography of these three dudes. He could have added G.K. Chesterton to that list, with, probably. With a foreword defending the value of writing and speaking poetically about beautiful truths it, it actually gave me language for that that i didn't have before like seeing beauty and saying beautifully um and then it also gave a really good defense of like is writing in poetic language uh going against kind of paul's ethic in first corinthians 2 where he said it's not with words of plausible wisdom that i came to you preaching the gospel and he's like is that what we're doing here like when we preach the gospel and we do it in like beautiful ways and winsome ways when we have good speakers getting up there uh is like are we going against what paul was saying and then he basically just is like no and here's why walking through the context of that verse but then also defending the category of being a winsome speaker and why that's actually valuable and scriptural. So I thought that was cool for one as an introduction. And then those three biographies were really awesome. So George Herbert, a poet, George Whitfield, preacher, C.S. Lewis, obviously writer, author, poet. Great little, great little recommend. All right. Uh, well, my next one on here is going to be Project Hail Mary, but we've covered that. Uh, next one is The Body Keeps the Score by uh, Bessel van der Kolk. Whoa. First time reading it? First time reading it. Let's go. I feel like each one of us, kind of each book podcast, did one. We, we've, we've all encountered this. This is kind now. of like, uh, what is a girl worth? Like in the first kind of few times we did this. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of come back to it over and over again. Uh, so this book is by a guy talking about, um, a psychiatrist talking about trauma and its effects. Uh, he talks a lot about PTSD. Uh, he talks about uh, repressed traumatic memory. Uh, it's very interesting. 
it's very influential. It's like a bestseller. Uh, so for it's it's right out there on the popular scene. Um, yeah, I I I thought it was good and worth reading. Uh, it's been recommended to me by so many people uh, in and out of that field. Um, one thing I will say that Jesse said previously um, is that like it has some rough stuff in it. Um, and I feel like it's just worth saying that, that like it's, it, the trauma that happens is rough and he describes it and he tells you some of the accounts of it. And that's going to be hard for some people and the people should know that going into it. It's popular level, but it's heavy. Um, the second thing, uh, and this is just worth noting is that, uh, his model of like repressed traumatic memory is not quite as universally accepted uh, within the discipline as he might make it out to be. Uh, so while it's a very popular concept culturally, like people broadly, like it's, in, it's a huge trope in like television and movies and books and stuff like that. It's like people being like, oh, I had a bad experience and I don't remember it. And then it gets triggered and you remember it and it comes back to you. That model though um, doesn't enjoy quite the same level of, of acceptance in like the, in the formal discipline uh, as it does in the broader culture. Uh, Cause it's really hard to actually have a really solid acceptance of that scientifically so that's just something that like he doesn't present it as being something that's even like up for debate um but it is like 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 i'm not talking about fringe here i'm talking like broadly like even in one of my textbooks they were just talking about it like like full-on made a big pitch for how this is probably not a thing and this is like just what every psychology student in canada has to do this textbook kind of thing like it is just not broadly accepted the way he makes it seem so, although there's, there's still, again, he's heck of a lot smarter than I am. And, you know, um, a lot of people still accepting it. A lot of people are looking at individual cases where they're like, okay, then what is happening here? You know what I mean? Um, so there's probably lots of good reason to still think that it's happening. It's just, it does not enjoy that level of acceptance that you might think having read this book. It's not, you obviously can't do experimental research on that, right? Can't go traumatizing people and then seeing if they forget about it. Um, but also if you're examining something like that where you can't do experimental research you're going to have a list of things where you're like huh okay well we can't experiment so here are some of the things you'd expect to see and you don't always get to see those things yeah. right so we don't often have like oh you're in a car accident and you saw your brother die and then like five years later you mention that and they like have no memory of it we don't see it happening that direction and that's something you'd expect to see instead what you have is people saying oh man I just remembered that something terrible happened to me 30 years ago and that's the only direction, typically speaking, that we see that happening in. And we would expect to like have a certain rate of like tra trauma patients where you're like, yeah, a certain percentage of these guys are going to forget this because it's gonna, they're going to repress it. But that's not actually something that we have good documentation for. Yeah. And you'd expect that. And like all of that kind of like trying to like put the pieces together is happening in kind of the, in the shadow of a looming heavily, heavily verified experimental body of research on how suggestible people are, which is kind of sucks because you can research suggestibility experimentally and we are insanely suggestible. And so it is just, there's still some people with question marks on that subject and you wouldn't see the question marks reading this book. Right. And okay. I'm not saying that I actually have a position. I actually... I'm probably more inclined to actually be on Bessel uh, van der Kolk's position on this one, but it's just worth noting that it's not actually universally accepted. Yeah, that's super helpful. That's really helpful. Thanks, Owen. Um, if you come across any books that sort of 
deal with this that are interesting, then you you don't need to wait till the next book book podcast. Tell us about it. You can you can put it in the the chat. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Okay, my next book is called Spirit of the Rainforest. Um, this is the only book outside of the Body Keeps the Score that I'm all about the segues today. Outside of that book that has more depictions of violence and sexual violence on like every page that I've ever read probably. What's the book again? It's called Spirit of the Rainforest. So it says that it is by Mark Ritchie, um, but really what it is is it's an attempt to faithfully translated an unedited life story of a tribal warrior from the Yanomama, which is one of the last tribes in the Amazon to be unengaged by society air quotes, whatever that means. Basically like that probably any segment of the Yanomama at this point have met outsiders from Venezuela or North America or, or wherever. Um, but this is like quite recent that they would have. Um, and so this man befriended some of the missionaries and the uh, anthropologists who were living among them and tried to capture as faith, as faithfully and as literally as he could translate. Um, so it's kind of interesting because the grammar is a little bit stilted. Like he, he tried to actually do it uh, as literal of a translation as he could. And so, I mean, we, we have no idea if he was faithful. We don't know if this person was telling the truth, but you know, you just kind of go in with the assumption that it's true. And I don't know about you guys, but I've sometimes fallen into the fallacy a little bit of tending to think that like these people groups are maybe living a bit of an Edenic life. Like I know that sin is everywhere, but, but maybe sometimes I've fallen into that fallacy a little bit. And this really dispels the myth that like, yes, there are elements of nobility. Um, but actually almost every character in this story was a villain. Um, not just of the tribes people, but of the, anthropologists and many of the missionaries, not all of them. Some of them were awesome, but, um, sorry. Yeah. There's, there's like the anthropologists who were living there to learn about them. There's the missionaries who were there to proselytize them. And then there was the Catholic missionaries also there to proselytize them. And then there's like people who are there for like gold or precious metals or something. Almost all of these people were horrible, horrible people, um, including most of the tribes people. So, probably one of the most disturbing and stomach wrenching books I've ever read up there, up there. Um, but there is redemption in it. Some incredibly beautiful themes. It actually ended very beautifully. Um, so I, I would actually put this as a big recommend if you have a strong stomach. Um, and I, I, I think a difference between it and the body score is that book to some extent had to delve into like specifics of the story. This is very like, um, it, it's, almost every single page describes some act of violence, but it's not always really specific and not when it isn't necessary. I think it was written title again, spirit of the rainforest. You, you don't think you can do it? No, that's fine. You don't need to. Um, but it is insanely fascinating and explores some different themes that you've just never thought about. Most likely. Um, the appendixes were super interesting because the author basically like addresses some critiques that he's received from the book and like just, which is I've never really seen in a book before where he just like directly writes back to some like columnists that he'd read of reviews of his book. But those appendixes made me so interested to hear like, what is the anthropologist side of this story? Like what's going on with them? Cause they're an interesting group of people. Um, these people who are like trying to protect like, them keep like one of the main things in this book was the natives were incredibly frustrated with the anthropologist where they're like 
do you think we're animals? Like you're going to just come and observe us and not help us at all. Like you're just, you're just like, this is like tourism for you. And you're going to, yeah, we're a nature documentary. Like you think we're animals. They were, so, um, that was really interesting to me. And it, I made me just kind of want to hear like, what's the anthropologist side of the story. So I did read a few books by anthropologists who went to work with the Anamamo. And I'll talk about those later because it's, yeah, I would just talk for so long. I'll try to keep those in short, but we'll come back to that later. Spirit of the rainforest is actually against all odds is a recommendation. I will try to read that. I just was looking at, as I was writing down, uh, that book on my recommend kind of sidebar, I was looking at how many books have I actually read from past ones that we like that I wrote down. Yeah. And it's, it's, it looks like it's about 25%. Same for me. <laughs> I, I always intend to read all of them. But yeah. Then I'm like, I'm going to read really all of these really important. Sure. Like I need to read this cause it's super interesting at the time. And then I only read 25%, uh, but you know, I would love to debrief this one with someone. So it'd be cool if you did, but no, no pressure. Okay. There's probably other ones I recommend even more. So, well, I'm not going to read it. So, no, I just thank you for your honesty. I guess. Yeah, gotcha. One of the other books I definitely will recommend, or rather, read that you recommend. Which one? I don't know. <laughs> we have yet to come to it. I think. <laughs> um, God, marriage and family by Andreas J. Kostenberger. I'm going to pair that with What Is the Meaning of Sex by Denny Burke. Very, very similar books. Uh, basically, two textbooks on sexuality. Um, God, Marriage, and Family was more uh, biblical theology, kind of ground up of, of marriage and sexuality and stuff like that. Um, whereas Burke's was a little bit more of a systematic approach. Um, and Burke's was better. I would, I think uh, there's really no reason to read both of them, I don't think. Honestly, you get almost everything from Denny Burke's. His introduction on modes of ethical reasoning was super helpful. And so I actually, it's kind of funny. Burke's book has become like one of the, I'm looking at Jermichael here. Burke's book's become one of like the de facto books I recommend on if you want a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a meaty theological treatise on like the purposes of sexuality. It's, it's just like a good book to read to be like, all right, I just want to get, I want to get a good overview of some of this, some of the debates of different things. I'm going to read this book. And it's, so it's not like super academic. But it is reasonably academic, and it'll it'll take you through a good tour de force. And so I I really like it. It's actually it's really good. Just because it also is just like it's very positive. It's not reactionary. It's just like hey, ground up. Let's do this. I can second that. That's a big recommend. It also does a little bit of in the introduction modes of ethical reasoning, just defining what those are, and kind of walking through the value of those for Christians and how we do those. Um, and that in and of itself makes it a big recommendation because it's just something that I could quickly give to someone and be like, this will give you your foundations for sexual ethics. Uh, the Inimitable Jeeves, super good. Mm, enjoyed it, but don't have too much to say right now. Family Worship by Don Whitney. Another super short book. going through all the Don Whitney books right now. Yeah, well, I did take his class, so that's why. Um, really good. Again, doing the same thing. I would highly recommend this. If you're not doing family worship with your family, please consider reading this book and, and starting that. Uh, by family worship, what he means is some regular time, pretty much daily, where you read scripture with your family, pray with your family, and sing. And uh, I love it. We do that as a family. And this is just a really tight, this one's even shorter, 87 pages that you could read quickly. 
My next one is also very short, The Crossy Board by Frederick Leahy. Uh, it's just a devotional. It was actually given to us by the elders at our church, gave everyone, all the households, this as a devotional to work through. And uh, it was it was actually just a dandy little devotional that sort of walked through the uh, sort of the trial and death of Christ. Just a, a dandy. It was a dandy, dandy little devotional. Yeah. So Sarah and I, Sarah and I, I read it. through it together, which is really nice. It's so nice working through a book with your spouse. Isn't that yeah. lovely? I yeah. All right. On to you, Jesse. Um, my next two were Miraculous Moons by Jerry Truesdale and Churches in Muslim Cities by Greg Livingston. Neither were that good. Um, all right, mo- moving on. Cool. Impossible Christianity by Kevin DeYoung. Great book. So it's not, this is not really true, but this is the book that Ordinary should have been. Sort of. Can you say the title again? Impossible Christianity by Kevin DeYoung. Oh, what's the Impossible Christianity subtitle? Yeah, Kevin DeYoung's really great for subtitles, so can you find that? Um, here's the thing. His kind of basic point was like, a lot of theologians that you like, if you, he's like, he's writing this straight for the classic reformed Christian person. And he goes, you probably pay attention and read biographies of all these great, amazing Christians who spent hours in prayer and did all this stuff. And he's like, in my pastoral work, I've actually gotten, I've realized a lot of people feel actually quite discouraged when they're some of the most healthy people, like their theology is really good. They're like, they're really working in the church, but they're actually some of the people who are most discouraged because they're the ones paying attention to like these biographies of these super Christians. And so he's like, I'm going to write a book that basically says, you know what? Here's a few short metrics that you can look at in your life. And if they're present there, then you're probably walking faithfully as a Christian. Good job. Very tight, simple book. What's the subtitle, Jamichael? Subtitle is, Why Following Jesus Does Not Mean You Have to Change the World, Be an Expert in Everything, Accept Spiritual Failure, and Feel Pretty Much Miserable All the Time. It's a wild subtitle, bro. His subtitles are the best. Okay, that's a pretty radical proposition, though, as a book. Like, if I was like, okay, lay out the things and, like, metrics for, like, whether or not you're actually, like, making it happen as a Christian... I feel he, like, whoa. he goes through First John, um, which First John says like gives out some things for those who are working uh, walking in the truth. And I forget what the three kind of metrics that he pulls, but it's Amazing. really funny because it, one part of it comes from w- an article he wrote that roughly had the same thesis, and he said he got a ton of pushback from people who were supposedly like kind of saying like I'm more reformed than you. By being like, huh, well, the fact that you're putting these metrics is basically kind of a secret salvation by works alone. And then so he's like, no. And other people being like, wow, these metrics make me feel like I have to like earn these, like do these to earn my salvation. And then he's kind of just being like, hey, so as probably the most reformed guy on the block, no, there's actually, the Bible does give us metrics by which we know that we're walking in truth. And they're attainable and real. And you should be like to some degree at peace the, trying to find the right words for these are super difficult but he does it was a really cool book i read it in like literally 12 hours um like i read it at night and then in the morning and it was done and i highly recommend it i really i got a lot from it and I, I think it's a great little book god marriage and family by andreas kostenberger jake mentioned that uh, Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord by Michael Reeves. It's a big recommend. Uh, it's a short book. It's in the Union series. Um, 
which are like the nice covers that look a lot like Gentle and Lowly. So it's a beautiful looking book. I love Michael Reeves as a writer. He's just very, uh, he's poetic in a way that's not, con- doesn't make ideas more confusing, but more clear. Mm. Uh, kind of has some C.S. Lewis vibes to me. Um, but Rejoice and Tremble on the Fear of the Lord. This is one that I was like, I don't know much about the Fear of the Lord. I would love to learn about it, read it, and I feel like it really helped me understand it more. Still, like, still need to grow in my knowledge of it. But if you're looking for like a primer on the Fear of the Lord, this will be a good one. I've just been hearing that from everybody about Michael Reeves that like his books are just bangers in that way, like beautiful but clear. Yeah, I'm I'm a big Michael Reeves fan. I think I've read almost everything now he's that he's written. I okay, got. Do you like, have a favorite? That. Like, do you have one that I was I was planning to start with Delighting in the Trinity, but if you, this is my favorite one that I've read. Okay, but Delighting in the Trinity, I has might shaped, still do Delighting in the Trinity, but I the, Delighting in the Trinity has shaped so much for me. Actually, okay, it's been a very formative book in an interesting way. Okay, cool. That's what I've heard, and just that it's really beautiful. So yeah, great. <laughs> All right, my next book is Art Plus Faith, A Theology of Making by Makoto Fujimaro. Uh, Japanese dude? Yeah. <laughs> no, American. Actually, an American-Japanese guy. Um, anyway, so uh, this book was a book I really, really wanted to like. Um, his... Why well, It's a good sign that... It, anyway, I don't, I don't love this book. So the fact that I'm struggling to like give you his premise, basically he's making the case for the role of Christians in the arts. Uh, um, the premise I can really get behind. Oh, I'm so pumped for it, right? Again, I wanted to love this book. But it was a little bit... I uh, even, like, so this guy's a painter. Uh, he has kind of like expressionist type painting. Um, I even kind of like his painting a little bit. Dude, I did not like this book. It was, it was garbage. Like I, I, I just a huge disappointment. Like you know, like sometimes you walk into a book going, mm, "I'm not gonna like this," and then you don't. It's like self fulfilling prophecy. But then, like when you walk into a book and you're like, "Let's go," and then you're like, "Oh, this is terrible," and you're like reading it more and more generously because you want it to work so bad, and it still won't deliver. Yeah. Oh. Does it ever make you wonder how much you would have hated it if you had gone in with a negative mindset? Like you were like, I wonder if there's some like old conservative fisherman who hates art or something who read this book and how they felt about it. I love that you went with a fisherman as a profession. Um, <laughs> but yeah, maybe if I'd been like, mm, this is going to suck. Some, some fisherman is like, do, 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 plop. Gosh darn, I hate art. That's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe his dad was an artist and couldn't pay the, couldn't pay the bills, and that's why he's a fisherman now. He went for the most lucrative career he could think of. Fisherman. Just trawling. Anyway, dad couldn't put him through college. That's what I'm saying. Okay, um, so I'm gonna give a couple of the a couple of my feedbacks. I don't want to be un, I don't want I don't want to be my voice is going, guys. I don't know if I can make this. I don't want to be unthoughtful in how I critique this book. I don't want to just say I hated it and leave it there because it. It does have a really promising premise, right? Um, and I do know people who like this book, who I respect. So here are my complaints. First of all, uh, he he seems to slip. You have to read it super generously. Yeah. 
which right out of the gate, it's not a good sign, man. If you're having to be like, okay, I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. Uh, you know, or I'm gonna, like, I'm going to like read that in a really charitable way. I'm going to read that not the way it sounds. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's not a good energy. It's not a good look going in, right? Um, but he seems to be playing around with a kind of vocational chauvinism that I'm not a huge fan of. So he's kind of got this like artist's, you know, like like in one of the beauties of I think of like practical reform theology is this idea that we don't have vocational chauvinism that we do everyone does his work as unto Christ, yeah. right? So like you know even as a suit salesman, I was able to be like, this is not like I'm less of a doing less godly work than if I was a pastor. You know what I mean? There's like this idea of like no everyone's working as unto Christ, right? Uh, he doesn't seem to have gotten that memo, uh, and. Uh, artists are significantly more connected to the Holy Spirit than the normal person. Like, and it is, unlike fishermen, unlike fishermen dude, it's rough. It's rough. And like, you're reading it going, okay, maybe he's saying like, he's using the term artist really broadly. He's talking about people who are like working as unto Christ really well, but he keeps making very specific references to like the fine arts. And he uses like, plumbing as a metaphor for soullessness for a huge chunk of it <laughs> and like that for me that's a huge uh, that's a huge turnoff i actually really find that problematic oh yeah like that is yeah. because it's like majorly problematic yeah like that's dark right um also he seems to really have a chip on his shoulder with like he probably tried to get into plumbing and like <laughs> totally failed. Like his dad's a plumber and he sucked out as a kid. <laughs> his dad rejected him and now he's writing a book. Someone get me the body keeps the score because I have some thoughts. Okay. Wow. Wow. So that the next critique is that he takes every now and then he'll like deviate from his, <coughs> his current goal and what he's talking about just to take like a random like drive by shot at the church or Christians oh, or pastors and you're like okay like which which the church which the pastors which the christians like you're just literally drive-bying the category like, like and like just like like talk about how like oh you're doing evangelism for all the wrong reasons i'm like literally all of them bro you're you're a painter like why don't you take five and like have the humility to consider the possibility <laughs> that like do you know what i mean like this is just wild like you're just literally like all christians are doing evangelism not up to your standard like Take five, man. This is a really, like, hostile energy you're bringing right now. And the, my, my last complaint is that he's fundamentally not a very good writer. Wait, uh, before you move on to that, <coughs> can I say something? Is it fair to say that he painted them with a broad brush? <laughs> I'm so glad Jesse you grabbed the mic for that. Jesse had a big gleam in his eye, and I knew Jesse it was something so stupid. happy. Like, you <laughs> need to have quite... children, Jesse, because you got dad humor. Uh, <laughs> To be fair, that's a pun that's like, that's solid. That's, that's right there. That's right there. That's, oh my goodness. That was, that was wonderful. But like not a great writer, which is kind of ironic because like one of his things is like, you know, Christians are dropping the ball in the arts, right? You know, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not producing great music. We're not producing great movies. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, I'm on board with this. It's good for us to have that critical eye and not to cut ourselves slack. You know, it's, you know, you're going to listen to the music just because it's Christian when, you know, Maybe we should have like high standards of excellence within our arts, right? I'm on board. Um, sucks that you wrote a crappy book because if there's one, if there's if there's one thread, if there's one thread that Christians never lost in the arts, it's that we always had great writers. You're not among them. Too bad. Like, like unfortunately, I feel like this book was recommended to me because oh, a Christian wrote a book about the arts, so I gotta like it. 
But no. <laughs> Not Owen. <laughs> that was the most devastating critique. Uh, okay. I also wanted to like this book. I'm going to do every single one from a segue from Owen's last I'm just book. picturing, yeah. sorry, I'm just picturing that like new light sassy meme of John Mayer doing like, yeah. Mm. <laughs> like, I, want, I want a meme uh, of Owen doing that. <sighs> okay. I also wanted to like this book. Um, and my 20th book is Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton. I really... No, okay. Here's 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 what I'll, here's what I really liked. But I really liked the story idea. Super fun premise. Um, nothing is wrong. Not, there's nothing wrong with this book. It's just that it it wasn't for me. Like I think when I read his really poetic um, and like over, I don't even know the right way to say it. Like like kind of organized chaos way of writing. I love that in his nonfiction because it took these kind of like potentially sometimes dry and boring ideas and like really dressed them up beautifully and like made me realize how beautiful they are with this. It was like kind of exhausting. So I'm trying to follow an actual story and the story is zany enough on its own. You could have written this in like the most plain prose ever and it is already zany, but then you write with like the way he writes and it was just like, I, I felt I've never ever read a book slower. I think cause it's a very short book and it took me forever. Like I was like, I would just sit on a page like trying to keep the thought um, so I can't say, I can't say I enjoyed it. I'm so sorry, Owen. I really wish I did. Is this the first time you've read a GK Chesterton novel? See. Okay. Um, that kind of, it's really not for everyone. I, I think on a previous podcast, I said that he writes, um, fiction, like someone who's, uh, never read fiction. He's only yes. heard about it. Yeah. He's got like his own way of doing it and it's weird. Mm -hmm. So I understand if people don't love it. I personally love it, but yeah, it's funny. This is a book that I didn't enjoy, but is still kind of a recommend. Actually, um, I would I would say give it a shot. Maybe you will love it. Jake, you're up. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Woo! I love this book, man. Kind of first, it's it's like the premise is really simple. We all work too much, and his basic thing is like one of the biggest enemies in the Christian life is busyness. He thinks it's one of the biggest like tools of the devil. And he wants to put forward like this really beautiful vision of Christians who rest. And so he's a huge proponent of the Sabbath in a way that I find like really compelling. And he just goes through, he has this really interesting idea of like, Jesus would like walking through where when Jesus went to the desert and like got like spiritually recharged there. So the Eremos, like the desert, the wilderness, the mountaintop where Jesus would go to pray and get recharged spiritual disciplines. So it's a really cool book because it walks through like scripture and theology and then really practical stuff about basic stuff that we've all heard, like putting your smartphone down and stuff like that, but kind of does it in a really theological way. Mm -hmm. He's a brilliant writer. He kind of has that, um, I don't know. I'm going to call it Portland exegesis. That means that sometimes it's a little like, okay, well, a little floofy, but it was good. Portland exegesis. That's so good. <laughs> it was no good. Lie. It was, it was, I really like those thoughts on the Sabbath. His presentation of the Sabbath of like Sabbath resting is one of the most winsome and coolest things I've ever heard. Totally agree. It's like 
it's it's because it's it's so wild yes. because it's like not really that radically reframing different than what we grew up like he's like yeah shocker you rest on the sabbath but he has a much more of an idea of like like no he, so he talks about like some of the sabbath traditions they have is as a family they bake a giant cookie together and then like lob ice cream all over it and eat it together like as a family like it's one of their traditions and they're like no the sabbath is not just rest it's like celebratory rest like enjoy that take a long nap have a glass of wine make a big cookie with your with your kids and then like enjoy he's like the sabbath is ma- made for a, a bit of junk food a long walk extra sleeping good coffee like rest and enjoy that and it's just the way he articulates it is just like oh that's really cool and so it's it's kind of an interesting blend of it almost feels like it's like a blend of a bunch of different books all put together super compelling but i caveat a couple of the exegetical stuff but not in a way that made me feel like oh it's kind of problematic it was just very good so yeah, yeah. it's it's hard to explain without just re-reading out the whole book i'll just say that he is compelling mm-hmm. he will convince you of most of his premises and it's just like, it's really fun when an author, this isn't always the case, but when an author writes a book that you're like, wow, you're like talking about a part of Christianity that is dope. Like you're creating this really, really compelling version of, of whatever this is. Mm-hmm. You like, I could bring that to an atheist and go like, hey, this is an aspect of what it means to be a Christian and you want to sign up because this is super cool. Not everything gets to be framed that way and that's fine. And not everything should be, right? But it, that he did it that well, I loved yeah, this is a book I think about often. Yeah, same. Uh, Quest for Godliness, The Puritan Vision for the Christian Life by J.I. Packer. Um, this was a good book. It's a big book, just kind of going through random aspects of the Puritan's view on kind of personal holiness, family and holiness, and spiritual disciplines. Um, I read it a bit piecemeal because it's for a course, like I read the whole thing but kind of jumping around chapters so it felt a bit a bit disconnected to me um and also like i think me and the puritans is is a meat problem most of the time because i really like some elements of them and then most of the time i find them really hard um so that's an area where i'm like i think i'm gonna just need to grow here i need to read more puritans but I don't like reading books about the Puritans. If I'm going to read them, I just want to read the Puritans. So this was for a course. But so many people have written books like Joel Beakey, J.I. Packer. There's like a lot of books about the Puritans. And I'm like, I'm just, I just want to go read them. But All right. My next book is The Story of the Human Language. It's actually not a book. I'm going to go fast over this one. This was on Audible, so I indulged myself by including it. Um, But it's a course of lectures by John McWhorter. He's a linguist, a really cool guy. Um, He actually has a reputation for being kind of an expert on, like, Creoles, uh, which is super... Um, What? Like, Creoles, like the uh, languages that develop... Super interesting. Yeah, like, out of, like, like basically post-slave communities and stuff like that. Hmm. Oftentimes in, like, the, uh, the Caribbean or, like, southern United States, stuff like that. Uh, and so these really cool like Spanish or English combo languages um, and just he so he's it's not the main focus of it the main focus of this one but that's just something he's known for so I was kind of excited to like listen to 
him talking about the story of the human language broadly. Uh, really interesting. If you have an Audible account, uh, this was actually free, I think. I don't know if it still is. But it's amazing lecture series in which he just walks through, um, hmm. yeah, linguistic semantic shifts and linguistic developments. And, like, it's really the, the story of the human language, John McWhorter. He also has written other interesting-looking books. Uh, he just looks like a kind of a guy I might be able to, like, get into a little bit as an author. So, yeah. Cool. That's that's one. Very cool. Um, definitely going to read that. Okay. My next one was Conscience by Andrew David Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. Have either of you guys read this? It's a really short... Sorry, Andy Nacelli? Was that one of the... Andrew David Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. Oh. It's on Crossway, but neither of the authors are super well known. But it, it did, I have seen it on a lot of people's shelves. Uh, the subtitle is What Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. It's awesome. It's, it's, mom recommended this to me a few years back. It's a really short little read. Um, I would love to see this as something that like churches recommend to their congregations um, about like holding your conscience to a high standard of like, like continuing to train it in, hmm. in the Bible, but also to like, understand how to love and have unity with people who differ from you. It was, it was just really concise and well put. And also one of the authors is in missions um, and had some really interesting insights into how culture affects ethics. I was just like, man, I wish everyone read, would read this. It's, it's not necessarily going to blow your minds. You guys probably have thought about this quite a bit already, but, mm. but it's, it's, it's a very concise wording of this. So I definitely recommend it. Jake, have you read the book? conscience it's just that or conscience what it is how to train it and loving those who differ it's by andrew nacelli and jd crowley i hadn't heard of either of them but it's on crossway definitely recommend okay anyway you're up um yeah that's coffee for you oh i grab you a tea in a second thanks genesis of gender a christian theory by abigail frivale so good so I asked my professor, Dr. Walker, what's the best book that you've read on like kind of history of feminism? And he's like, Genesis of Gender. And so Abigail Fravalli, sorry, I'm a lot of breath, just ran up the stairs. She, um, she basically did all her training, all her doctoral training, all in critical theory, in feminist literature, all that stuff, and became a professor for a while and then eventually converted to Catholicism. So her, her walkthrough is just really helpful. She just gives you like, she's like, I think still respects it enough to treat it as a solid intellectual tradition. And so is basically just like, look, I'm going to walk you through some of the craziness that's going on in, in the world right now, kind of typical cultural analysis book, but does so, does so from the unique perspective of like wanting to see it through the lens of feminist theory over the last you know 100 years or so did you read it jermichael i found it so explanatory because she still i think lives enough in that camp to take it seriously so she calls herself sometimes a little bit of a bridge between feminist theory and the even and the christian world so she's like i got my critiques for the christians and my critiques for the feminists and sometimes i don't know where to land and i was like cool that gives you a unique voice and being able to explain some things i found it very helpful I would certainly actually, if it's good, if you're kind of compiling five or six books on what you want to read about, like, like, you know, rise and triumph, sexuality, identity stuff, 
throw it in the mix. It's a great book that I think reasonably sits alongside Rise and Triumph, alongside... It'd be kind of fun to, to build like a five books you should read on sexuality if you're a, if you're a discerning reader. And it would be I, it, this would probably be one of those. Not, not so much the help with pornography space, more on a worldview building kind of thing. Yeah. Adding it to my list. It is really, also, great writer, really engaging read. And you cannot believe how unhinged some feminist thinkers are. That's what shook me. I was like, feminists, I mean, you know, they're off to their lunch, a bunch of stuff, but, you know, loosely in the same degree. And then you're like, oh, no, you, like, hate women. Like, you, your whole intellectual bent of your career is about the eradication of what is femininity. And you call yourself a feminist theory. It's like, there's no other word for it. They And they only barely would disagree with me. It's bizarre stuff. It's more like the language has been stolen. So it's like, yeah, like if you said well, you hate women, they would not agree with that. Right. But language has been twisted and changed because now what, to, what a good woman is and what they're fighting for for women is to be like men. And that's kind of what she shows in... Uh, in the book is walking through how anything naturally feminine by most of these writers is like being denigrated and put down and a vision of femininity that looks like masculinity is what is being lifted up Mm. it's very interesting and it just actually kept reminding me of like the curse that god said your desire would be to rule over the man like that would be to take and grasp like what he has and it feels like this is our cultural manifestation of that curse in women sadly not viewing the, the glory and the beauty of their design and wanting to grasp and take a hold of how so, something that is God is designed meant to be. It's interesting. Um, next one for me, true sexual morality, recovering biblical standards for a culture in crisis. Uh, another sexual ethics book. Lots of stuff I could say about this. Um, some parts that were kind of just boring and straightforward, but it does do a good job of giving like the biblical, the biblical prohibitions, the biblical positive vision, some helpful litmus tests for sexual ethics, and then walking through, I think it was three or four cultural, like kind of main cultural views on sexuality. So there's like the pornographic playboy one there's the paganism view uh and a couple others and i thought it was a really interesting book um i wouldn't say it's a big recommend though yeah the book's by daniel r heimbach he's an ethicist at southeastern i think um it was there were chapters in that book that were like wildly fascinating like like the pagan sexuality as as in like you know this idea that it's this interesting idea because the pure, a pure naturalist is just like eh, you procreate the species moving on you know what i mean that's all sex is it's pleasure and procreation who cares pagans are like no no there's a transcendent aspect of sexuality to which the christian goes yep but you're worshiping the wrong god they're either a god comprised of them or some sort of like you know a lot of eastern thoughts so a lot of the hippie the hippies kind of free love, transcendence, psychedelic stuff was actually far more pagan than it was like kind of a modernistic naturalism. So there was stuff in there that was really interesting to think through. And then, but yeah, the whole book was kind of like, okay, cool. Another, another sex, <laughs> sexuality textbook that we've read. You guys just 
it's it's so interesting how this podcast what i what i think about those gonna be interesting in a few years um i mean you're probably still gonna keep reading keeping up on the literature right making sure you're not falling behind on scholarship but like i could see you moving into like a, a space where you're not reading sexuality textbooks yeah i hope so at the same rate <laughs> and you know like <laughs> what like nine a year oh it's outrageous you guys yeah. are outrageous so uh like i do actually i think it'd be interesting being able to look back and be like oh yes we were in that season you know yeah, it's it's a it's a privilege to be able to to be able to do this. Yeah, absolutely. My next book is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Rip. Yeah, actually. To a legend. Yeah, Did wild. Yeah. Huh. Your social media feed wasn't blown up with that. Uh, my social media feed is frozen right now because I'm taking a little break, a little break of room. Uh, I didn't know. All right. But. Uh, yeah, so I don't know if anyone's read Cormac McCarthy. I feel like I just have to say his name, and then you get the gist of what's going on in the book. Yeah, because uh, it's just gonna be—it's gonna be dark. People are gonna die. It's gonna be some violent scenes that really push your comfort around. Um, and then you're gonna finish and walk away feeling like horrified, but strangely enriched. It's just—it's his—it's his style. Like I don't know what to tell you. I—I um, I like Cormac McCarthy, but I can't stomach a lot of it. So I just felt like I. I felt like I was in a good space. I hadn't read McCarthy in a while, so I picked up the road. Have you got? Have any of you guys read No Country for Old Men? Nope. No, but I. No, but I loved the movie. Really? Yeah. Did you like the movie? I've never the movie is like, it's would be boring if the acting wasn't so unbelievably good. Otherwise, it would just be like a lot of shooting and chasing someone from one scene to the next. Isn't it? But the acting sells it like crazy. Isn't Jake, you would like it. Quite gay. What? No? Okay. Think of something different. Uh, I think of Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, dude. No, not okay. Brokeback Mountain. That's just gay, but like, okay. I, no, no, no. I'm just curious. No, no, no. Uh, no, not, not those kind of cowboys. No, no. This is, this is just like, okay. The Netflix sometimes has way, you know how backs of DVDs have terrible descriptions of them that like almost make the movie seem like something you would never want to watch? Yes. Well, Netflix is really good at writing their own summaries of stuff that actually make you really want to watch it. What when they had No Country for Old Men for a bit, the like summary was um something 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 and now your fate is determined by a coin and the man with the weird haircut. And it was like, "What?" And it like just showed this scene of like this gas station attendant and there's this weird guy with a weird haircut who looks so like his haircut is dorky but he looks terrifying and he just like is deciding whether or not to murder this gas station attendant and then and then doesn't kill him and just leaves and the gas station attendant is totally oblivious and it was like this haunting like like this bit of dialogue that i like couldn't forget the not the rest of the movie was as good as that one scene but i like i was like netflix you really sold me on this movie and the only thing is i'd say is if you're gonna read no country for old men don't listen to the audiobook why? Yeah, so I strongly recommend reading it because he is super deconstructed in terms of form. Uh, so it's really interesting reading the physical because you can see what he's doing structurally with his grammar and like stuff like that. Uh, and even just punctuation and stuff. He is wild. He's just doing his own thing. And so like, I just feel like that's part of the experience. Worth it? Interesting. I read, I listened to... But like, for like the broad audience listening out there, these are very violent books. Yeah. They're very dark themes. These are like, again, I don't, I can't read them very often. They're just, they're, they're hard. But 
again, he does a pretty decent job of weaving it enriching themes. So The Road, horrible book. Horrible. And yet so beautiful. Well, my next book is a little bit lighter. Sometimes my segues are going to be opposites. Uh, this book has probably my favorite title of the year. Why Johnny Can't Preach by T. David Gordon. Have any of you guys read this book? Heard about it. I've heard about it. I really want to read it. Okay. It's basically a book about why the author feels preaching has declined uh, and become worse over the years and how he thinks people can improve their craft so that your congregations are neither bored, confused, or apathetic after a sermon. Um, I saw this on a library shelf and I was like, this book is either going to be really good or really bad. Like it's either going to be clever and well-written and poignant, or it's going to be like old man yelling at a cloud. I was like, it's, there's no in between. Um, and I'm delighted to discover that it was the former. Um, so the table of contents answers the question for you. It's two chapters. <laughs> it's just chapter one, because Johnny can't read and chapter two, because Johnny can't write. And basically his premise is that, so he's not actually critiquing like bad theology and sermons. He's just saying they're bad as in like, they're not beautiful and they are not clear. Like they don't, um, people aren't grabbed by them and they're confused by them. So he's like, I just can't count the amount of times I talked to someone and they're like, Oh yeah, I, I love my pastor. He's such a good guy, but he's not like the most gifted preacher, but that's okay. You know? And he's like, that's great. Like, I'm glad they're men of good character, but like we should hold them to some level of excellence. So, um, he, he pretty much is saying that like when he's in an airport, he'll play this game where he'll talk to someone and within five minutes, he'll try to guess if they're a reader based on like what kind of vocabulary they use and how good they are at like stringing together sentences into like, like actual arguments and like stories and whatnot. And then he'll, and then after he's done that, he'll say, Oh, what have you been reading lately? And they'll be like, wait, how do you know I like to read? And he's like, I could just tell. And then after that, he'll see if he, in within 10 minutes, he can find out if they are someone who writes for a living, um, like whether they write at work or whatever, or maybe you're actually like a professional journalist or something. So, you know, it, it's, it's a little pretentious sometimes, but not really. Like it's in a very pithy and like fun way. Like it was not overly, I didn't find it to be like overly harsh or anything. And I don't know. I don't think you guys are actually going to learn anything that you didn't know already. So I actually would not say that any of you three need to go like buy this book on Amazon or anything. But if you're ever in someone's home or a church library or something that has this book, totally just pull it off the shelf and read it in one sitting. How long? Like a hundred pages. Super short. Again, I don't, I don't think it's going to blow your mind. I just found it really entertaining and it did make me think like, yeah, am I someone who's growing in my clarity and my beauty of prose? Because so I, again, I don't think it's going to blow your minds. Like I probably told you most of the meat of it just in like the table of contents actually does sum it up (laughs) because Johnny can't read and because Johnny can't write. I have a um, preaching class next semester and I've been reading a little bit ahead. So I'll get into that in a little bit, but I'm reading a lot about preaching and so I'm going to learn how to preach and I'm excited. It's going to be fun. Uh, Great sex rescue. Uh, Sheila Ray Gregory. We either have talked about that or will talk about that. So we can kind of skip that. Um, Hopefully, hopefully we have talked about it or we'll talk about it. Um, New Testament theology, Thomas R. Schreiner. It's 866 page tome on new testament theology yeah i i'll get into this in a a little bit too i struggle with books that don't really have a thesis and and a lot of these books are like they try and make a thesis like their thesis is 
our thesis is because God's glory is most manifested in his work of redemption in the world. And you're like, yep. And that just means you're just going to say a lot of biblical truths in propositional form over a long period of time. So this book was good. And if I didn't know all of it, it would have been mind blowing, but I knew all of it. And so it was kind of like, I'm not sure I read it because it was a textbook and there's just nothing that was like, okay, I would have much rather been like, all right, we're going to learn, read about the new perspective and argue against it. And that was the class. So it's a good book. It's just not, it's too big for me to recommend it to people. Like you're not going to read it. 866 page tome on new testament theology so okay cool good textbook carry on jeeves by pg woodhouse it's very good do we need to quickly do we, do we need to briefly we already we already briefly we did to, why we need to read these books right? they're hilarious they're super funny they're the best we talked about them a bit earlier uh, Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams by Matthew Walker. I love Matthew okay, did Walker. did y'all read this already? No, but I've listened to several okay. lengthy podcasts with him. When he went on Joe Rogan like five years ago, at that point in time, I was like sleeping like, I don't know, six hours at the most a night. And I just was like, oh yeah, I function fine. Like, cause I felt fine. I was young. <laughs> I did, <laughs> I, I did, fine, I did bro. feel fine. But then I, I read it and he just blasted me with statistics, Dude. compelling statistics for like four hours. That was just him like monologuing about like yes. crazy. And I was like, okay, you've convinced me. And I changed immediately. I started sleeping wow. eight hours a night, six, six nights a week. I, I probably screwed up at least once a week, but like six nights a week. And I've done that ever since then. I take it wow. so seriously. It completely changed my life. That's crazy. And my yeah. life is better for it. So I'm thankful for him. This book, I was already sleeping almost eight hours a night. This book definitely solidified that for me. It also was f just fascinating. Uh, and walking through some of the stuff with memory and sleep, Whoa. that made me really uh, prioritize sleep all the more and realize why like so many students are like doing the most counterproductive thing they could by staying up really late all the time. Yeah. Like as far as like a culture of that, he walks through like how, how dreams affect that and like my way of dreams connected and like just really interesting. A lot of it is stuff that I, I'm just sort of forgetting the details and just have now vague memories of, oh, I should do this. I should do this. And I should do this with sleep. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, kids really screw that up, but. Um, totally. But when you book. can, obviously don't beat you yourself can. up if you can't, but that that's maybe the only bad thing about the only negative effect the book had on my life is that I think it killed the, some of the placebo effect of like now that I know how bad sleep affects me sometimes when I get a bad night's sleep I like can't fake it till I make it quite as well as I could right. have before or maybe that's getting older but um, that's that's maybe the only downside some some of the people I know who like don't believe in good night's sleep they're like that's stupid I sleep four hours and I'm fine some of those people are operating at like a really high level in life um, because they believe in that so strongly, I think. Yep. They're also. I just think they would do better earlier. Yeah, and I just think they would probably do better. It's like you're you're yeah. just someone who operates at a really high level, no matter what state you're in. You you when you're dying, when you're super sick, you still put in a full day's work. I think you'd be operating at an even higher level if you got some sleep. And um, whether or not you'll operate higher, or, like more or less, I think there's lots of arguments for the fact that you will perform better with more sleep. Mm -hmm. Um. That's what, but which, which is what you're saying. Yeah. But it is interesting walking through how much like sleep is one of the number one things for quality of health later in life. Mm -hmm. 
And just thinking through, like, as a Christian, if you want to take care of your body, if we care about that at all, if we believe in any of those arguments, getting good sleep is actually one of the best ways to protect yourself. Yeah, I've I've given this counsel sometimes to people who are struggling with with like chronic sin or, or porn issues or something like yes. that. I'm like, that's what I was gonna say. Like you're you're basically setting yourself up for failure or by anxiety. being tired. Like so many people who are like struggling with yeah. like anxiety and just yeah, like a, a bit of a purposelessness. It's like yeah. if you get good sleep, get up. I don't know. It just yeah. This is this is obviously things. no hate on people who struggle with insomnia, but if you can no. sleep and you're choosing not to, like, that's bad stewardship of your body and your time and your health. I think one of the things this book, or no, I didn't read the book. Sorry, but the podcast that he did did to for me was like it completely made me not impressed with people who were like, yeah, like I can do six hours a night and get everything done. I'm like, okay, just like I used to be kind of impressed by that a little bit, and now I'm just not at all. Yeah. And he has one of the coolest lines i think i can pull it off in that podcast where joe asks him he's like well, what about the people that say they can like do you know six hours of sleep day in day out and have no no harmful like they can do it and he goes the amount of people who can sleep less than six hours with no serious side effects expressed as a percentage rounded to the nearest whole number is zero and just left it there i thought that was like one of the coolest ways of explaining something it was awesome all right, uh, my next book is Orphans of the Sky by Robert Heinlein. Nice it's a good title. <clears throat> Jacob, had you read this book? No. Okay, I was, I was curious because like, as I was reading, I was like, this is kind of ringing, it's, I'm recognizing some of this stuff as maybe being something from a book you talked about earlier, but anyway. Um, I'd never read a Robert Heinlein novel. I started another one called uh, The Puppet Masters uh, and it was... It, it got kind of gross, so I stopped reading it and started reading this one instead. Uh, and this one was good. It's good. Uh, the basic premise is that there's all these people who have been living on a spaceship for many generations. And it's a huge, huge spaceship. Uh, and it's basically on a journey to like a, a new planet. And they're going off to this new planet. Um, it's like the plot of Wally. Con- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kind of, um, except that there, like, there's different floors, there's different like levels in this ship, uh, and as you get into some of the levels, you encounter like, because they basically there's like mutant people uh, as a consequence of like radiation and stuff like that, uh, and so, so like, like Spider-Man. Well, no, not fun. So, <laughs> but yeah, you've got like you've got some mutant people up there in in these upper levels and it's kind of like the, these barbarians and you've got like these civilized people living on these other levels. And so like they're fighting with each other and everyone's like fighting with knives for some reason. It's, it's kind of like a, it's a, just an odd sci-fi novel, but Robert Heinlein is really well known as a good writer and cool. he kind of comes through, but yeah, I, I'd say that based on my little excursion into trying to test out his stuff, he writes some, some odd, odd spotty stuff. So cool. Speaking of Tom Schreiner, <laughs> sorry, I'm going back to Jacob's round. Really falling apart on these. All right. <laughs> Speaking of Tom Schreiner um, and yeah. R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and Mark, Martin Luther, I I was I was preaching on First Peter a, a couple. <laughs> I was preaching a couple of sermons on First Peter and in a place where I did not have internet access, and so I uh, I just 
grabbed whatever commentaries were available to me, and those commentaries were from Tom Schreiner, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and Martin Luther. And um, these are not necessarily the commentaries I would have chosen, but they were all good in their own way, actually. Um, so Tom Schreiner's was the most scholarly. Um, the other three weren't really commentaries proper. They were kind of just sort of the author's thoughts and expositions. Um, but this one really dug into the background of things. So that was cool. R.C. Sproul's was definitely the most creatively written and devotional. Like this is what I would actually just read as a as an aid for reading the book. Like I think I'm going to read more of R.C. Sproul's um, books about books of the Bible. John MacArthur isn't my favorite writer, as y'all know, um, but I got to give him props for one thing. This book is super organized and the way he keeps kind of the, the, the like texts of scripture keep coming back and then they have like bolded the line he's talking about and it is bolded corresponding with what he's talking about. It's just so readable. Like, like I, I wish, I mean, his content was not bad at all. I wish his content was better or that some, or that whoever kind of like helped him with this or, or yeah, he got a great intern to work on that one. Whoever that intern was should have worked on all these other ones too. That would have been great. And then finally, Martin Luther's was just so interesting. Like, there just wasn't really, I'm assuming at least, there wasn't really a standardization of how this was done back then. Probably not. Like, I feel like maybe maybe, maybe lots of people writing commentaries. But all that to say, like, he would just sort of go for, for rants for days about something he found interesting in the text. And then sometimes he would get to, like, the controversial captive spirits passage. And he would just be like, I have no idea what this means. And it was like, it was just, it was hilarious. Respect. I really dug it. His writing was like really winsome and good. And I wish all of his writing was that winsome and good. Um, Cause he's sometimes not known for being winsome. Sometimes he's known for being kind of mean, bit of a meanie sometimes that Martin guy, but this, yeah, all four of them are good in their own way. Totally. What a t-shirt that says that <laughs> with like a reformation heritage, like logo on it or something. <laughs> Martin Luther. A bit of a meanie, that Martin guy. <laughs> uh, the Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. It was really good. Um, I know a lot of people that have been really impacted by it. So it didn't really impact me. And I, I th that book actually was one of the books that solidified for me. And um, this is not a strength or anything. It's just I really need a book to make an argument. Or... I need the book to be explaining propositions that are so I was just not considering. So the sleep, a book on sleep might not necessarily really need to make an argument beyond the obvious, but maybe it's just, I'd so, oh, I didn't know. And all the truths just resound this book. It's like, well, okay, uh, there's nothing really. He said about holiness that blew any categories for me. So I really needed to have a book that really moved me from point A to point B to resonate with me. Other people might not need that. Um, but yeah, that was, that was my take. So it was good. I read that book for a Bible study one time. Okay. Yeah. And your thoughts? Oh, well, it was, ah, this is the problem with Bible studies. It's always fantastic when you got a good group of people. Right. Who are, right, right, right. you know, so I've read terrible books in Bible studies and been like, that was a great study. Yeah. I feel like there's certain classics where like, you know, okay, I already know a good amount about this. To your point, they're not making a argument per se, but they're still probably a really good book. Those are the ones that I like doing for Bible studies because what you do is you just sit on on good writing and good truths and then you talk about them and i like reading the arguments on my own and the new ideas on my own more but um for me is it my turn now yeah uh the kreutzer sonata by leo tolstoy uh very good short story definitely recommend to y'all it's pretty short and i think y'all would enjoy it it's about uh, two guys well guy gets on a train 
kind of meets a bunch of random people. They're sitting down having tea. There's a dude in the corner who's like sulking and doesn't want to talk to anyone. Is being rude. And then the guy finally gets him to talk. And uh, they're talking about women and society. And it gets this quiet dude all riled up. And the final thing he says is that he murdered his wife. Everybody goes silent and then leaves. And then he stays and is like, all right, can you tell me the story? And then the rest of the, the book is just him telling the story of how he murdered his wife. And it's really good. Very enjoyable. It's the logic of it. I'll be honest. It doesn't sound very good. <laughs> <laughs> I quite it sounds like it. a story about a man murdering his wife. Wait, who's it again? Uh, Leo Tolstoy. Extremely Russian. <laughs> Extremely problematic. Are you saying you endorse what he did in that book? You you love that? You like that? I worship it. Oh. No. <laughs> Undesirable. <laughs> Undesirable number one. Uh, no, just interesting book. I feel like you would all like it. And it was, it was like a shorter story? Yeah, it's uh, about 100 pages. Oh, okay. It's, a, it's technically a short story. Like a novella or something? Yeah. Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at itsthevolk. Have a good one, guys.